There was a time in which Dwight Eisenhower truly believed that there wasn't a reason that the United States and the Soviet Union couldn't be the best of friends and allies. Hindsight is 2020, of course, but after the fall of Berlin, there was a lot of criticism towards Ike's failure to capture the German capital city. The Soviets had gone in violently and destroyed the city and committed mass acts of rape and murder. That's not to say those things aren't commonplace in most militaries, but the fall of Berlin was particularly gruesome. But Ike seemed to have confidence that Berlin would be split up fairly between the Allies, and he also reasoned that the Soviets were closer and would be able to get to the city faster than they would. Despite the appearance of allyship, the fact of the matter was that there was so much at stake when it came to capturing Berlin. It was a wealth of things to exploit, including a cache of Nazi scientists with immense training in building powerful weapons. Eisenhower's decision to hold back on grabbing Berlin first was a sharp contrast to his earlier sentiments. He had written to Marshall, there is no doubt whatsoever in my mind that we should concentrate all our energies and resources on a rapid thrust to Berlin. But after the Battle of the Bulge, Eisenhower told Stalin that they could take Berlin and the Allies would meet them there. But a line was crossed because Eisenhower, who was running the ground war in Europe, hadn't discussed this with the other Allied countries. Churchill specifically was furious. How did Eisenhower not see what was going to happen when the Soviets arrived. There was so much to lose. And the last thing anyone wanted was to see Joseph Stalin getting his hands on nuclear weapons. Despite the controversy, Eisenhower would defend his decision to the death. The Americans were stretched too thin, and it would have been impossible to make it to Berlin without great losses. But the division of the city of Berlin and the race to capture scientists would ultimately lead to one of the most tumultuous periods in American history. And soon, Ike will have to learn how to keep a cold war cold. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Dwight D. Eisenhower, Episode 5. The race to capture Germany's nuclear assets was classified for many years. Colonel Boris T. Pash was heading up a group of soldiers who ran around searching for those hidden caches of nuclear resources. Though Germany had started out as a forerunner of nuclear research, the war and its toll had caused these programs to dwindle. Pash had known that communist spies had infiltrated the ranks of the American government, and they knew it was imperative to keep Nazi scientists out of the hands of Stalin. And thus the Soviets and Americans set out collecting scientists as if they were collecting baseball cards. And the Americans also began destroying nuclear labs that they discovered better destroyed than in the hands of Stalin. Even Truman had ordered the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki prior to a scheduled invasion of Japan by the Soviets. The message was clear. They did not want nor trust Stalin around their weapons. After the Potsdam Conference, Germany was divided into four occupied zones. The city of Berlin was also split into four quadrants. The U.S. held the south of Germany and the Soviets, the east. And as the Soviets declared other parts of Eastern Europe as theirs, we see the beginning of the Iron Curtain, a divided Europe. Ike had extended as much goodwill as he could towards the German people, making sure they had 
food and supplies. The Allies had seemed to learn from its handling of the Treaty of Versailles that Germany needed to be demilitarized, not punished with a broken economy. And Dwight's response with American aid shifted some anti-German sentiment to a recognition of the German people as victims of the Nazis. The Nazis would be punished. Civilians would be helped. But tension continued to grow between the big three allies and Stalin. The ramifications of this split would haunt Eisenhower during his entire presidency. In 1945, General George C. Marshall finally retired. The war was over and Marshall was surely exhausted. And it came as a surprise to no one when Truman selected Eisenhower to fill his shoes. And so Ike came home after cruelly cutting his driver and assistant Kay out of his life. He never spoke of her to most. He had helped her obtain U.S. citizenship and pulled a few favors to get her work, but at the end of the day, Ike pretended she never existed. He had had no previous political aspirations, which would explain how brazen he was when it came to being photographed with her or appearing in public alongside her, sparking rumors. And to be certain, no one seemed to know what Eisenhower's political leanings were. Truman had urged Eisenhower to run on a joint Democratic ticket, but Eisenhower declined. He had no desire for politics, he swore. He found them distasteful and was focused on finishing up his active military career. And then he would retire. He was done. He nearly kissed the ground after his plane landed to bring him back to the U.S. for good. Oh, God, it's so good to be back, he said. Ike could deny a political career all he wanted, but he was a natural speaker and was in high demand. He was eloquent and extemporaneous. But he saved those skills for the remainder of his military career. The construction of the Pentagon showed the growth of the U.S. military, but Ike frequently got lost inside its hallways. He once had to stop a group to ask how to get back to his office, and the incident became a headline overnight. Long walks down long hallways aside, Ike was happy to get back to work. But given his popularity and natural charisma as a speaker, politicians around Washington kept their eyes on him. It was in 1948 that Ike retired from active duty. Around this time, he was offered the presidency of an Ivy League school, Columbia University. Eisenhower was a great many things to many people, but... Though extremely intelligent, he was not an academic. The position was far more political than he likely realized it would be, and the Red Scare was rising. There was a tightrope to walk amongst leftist faculty and the general public, and a lot of the decisions that Ike made were unpopular. It wasn't all a disaster, but shortly after starting, Eisenhower took a leave of absence from Columbia. President Truman needed his help, and Ike jumped at the chance. The president wanted him to return to active military service as the first military commander of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Dwight was named Supreme Commander of Allied Forces of Europe, and it was at a time when military matters were at the heart of NATO. Now, NATO remains a complicated organization to this day, especially since alliances were a major, if not the main reason, for the outbreak of World War I. Everyone was justifiably wary of that. But Eisenhower reasoned that alliances between some of the world's greatest powers would prevent another Hitler from rising again. The creation of NATO is one of those things in history where I see the problems but also understand the reasoning behind its creation. 
The USSR wanted no part of NATO, and Russia, to this day, still doesn't. In 1951, while touring European capital cities, Ike made an impassioned plea for all countries to band together to increase their military might. The reasoning was to build what Ike called a wall of security. Many European countries had allowed their ground forces to weaken after World War II, and though they knew they were allied with the United States, they seemed to be complacent as the Soviet Union grew. America had atom bombs, and that was enough for many to be lulled into a quiet confidence. Ike, though assuring everyone that the United States was all in on NATO, emphasized that it was important for these nations to also protect themselves. On the other side of the aisle, Dwight got most Americans on board by assuring Congress that America would not have to be the sole protector of Europe. Dwight had previously attempted to have all 18-year-old males serve a compulsory year of military service, and that idea had been quickly shot down. Americans were battle-weary. There were still those who hoped for American isolationism once more, but the threat of a Soviet attack was catalyzing Americans and Europeans to band together. An ounce of prevention, if you will. Ike became more and more frustrated when Congress cut military spending despite his impassioned pleas. He wanted to stay ready, and he feared America would fall into complacency. It had taken so long between World War I and World War II to build the mighty troops they had, and if the USSR continued its growth, the United States would have its work cut out trying to catch up. Dwight found his name continually tossed around the political scene in Washington, D.C. In 1948, the Republicans would nominate Thomas E. Dewey for the presidency. Dewey was the former governor of New York, and amongst friends, Eisenhower said he would be voting for him. Eisenhower was surrounded by Republicans in the military, though he carried himself more as a moderate. But it was a Florida congressman who told Ike he would nominate him over Dewey, and despite Ike protesting, he would put his name in whether he wanted him to or not. After a few threats, the idea was dropped, and Dewey ran against the incumbent Truman. Truman, of course, would win, even though the Chicago Daily Tribune would famously and erroneously report that Dewey had won during a strike of newspaper employees. They were struggling. Truman may have understood what Ike stood for and his popularity. He even at one point offered to let Ike run for president on the Democratic ticket. Truman offered to run as vice president. But their relationship was always strained. When Ike began voting Republican, the two fell out. They had always had an immensely strong working relationship, but it fell into disarray over time. Eisenhower had been all but offered the Democratic nomination, as well as the Republican. Something changed in him when one of the latter's party members told Ike if he did not run, he was going to have to choose between Truman or Robert A. Taft. Taft is truly one of those nepotism politicians, as the son of former President William Howard Taft. He would also briefly serve as the Senate Majority Leader before his death. Taft did not care for Eisenhower, seemingly threatened by the idea he would run for the Republicans. And Taft and his staffers began spreading rumors to anyone who would listen. 
They talked of Mamie drinking too much. Oh, Mamie is an alcoholic, they would say. Or Ike is secretly Jewish. Or he had a very wanton and public affair with his driver. It did not seem to affect Ike's popularity. Ike knew he was more popular amongst the Democrats, but he was often quoted as saying he hoped to save the Republicans from themselves. So in 1952, when Ike decided to run for president on the Republican ticket, Truman immediately went in for the kill. Initially, Truman had expressed some sympathy for the slander coming from Taft, but when it was announced that Ike would be running against Adelaide Stevenson, Truman joyously jumped into the fray with partisan attacks. But Eisenhower swung back, attacking Truman for being soft on communism and placing the blame on that softness for the current war in Korea. Truman went after Ike's lack of political experience. He knows about as much about politics as a pig, Truman said. Truman also had the easy target of Senator Joseph McCarthy, a Republican who had spent his political career stirring up drama with his paranoia over communists in the United States. McCarthy had made it easy to attack the Republican Party. Had McCarthy's trail been less damning and catastrophic, his mental state would have almost been laughable. But Eisenhower did not care for McCarthy. But Eisenhower reasoned frequently that he could rebuild the Republican Party. At the end of the day, Ike ran because he hated Taft's isolationism. An isolated America would surely allow the Soviets to run free reign in Europe. He also wanted the war in Korea to be brought to a resolution swiftly. Taft had tried to put his pocketbook into his campaign, and it did look like for a moment as if he would win the nomination. It came as a blow to all involved when Ike slid in and won the nomination. The news had the staff of Taft's campaign sobbing in a hotel hallway. But Ike made his way to Taft, and before Taft could grovel or fight, Ike silenced him. There was no need for emotional conversation, Ike said. He considered Taft his friend. I want to be your friend, and I hope you will be mine. The infighting for the time seemed quashed. But now it was time for Ike to select a running mate. In order to completely grasp all the votes from the Republicans, many suggested a young senator from California, a man named Richard Nixon. In all of the odd pairings of presidents and vice presidents, there are a few as mismatched as Ike and Dick. Maybe Kennedy and Johnson. You had a salt-of-the-earth military man alongside an Orange County, California suit and tie guy with a million-dollar smile. Ike's advisors urged the two to team up. Nixon was incredibly anti-communist, and Ike's advisors thought that he would appeal to the base of isolationists that Eisenhower's moderate nature repelled. But there was always an air of distrust between these two, and fairly quickly into the 1952 campaign, Nixon stirred up scandal over campaign donations. It was just six weeks before the election when it came out that Nixon may have improperly used campaign finance money for reimbursements to the tune of $18,000 and potentially more here and there. During an interview with reporter Peter Edson, Nixon mentioned the money being set up in this fund to pay political expenses and that he had not bothered searching for the names of the fund's contributors. 
As any good journalist should, Edson ran with it. He spoke with campaign management, and for the most part, Nixon thought Edson's article was a fair assessment of the situation. And then the New York Times got a hold of it. Secret rich men's trust fund keeps Nixon in style far beyond his salary. That was the headline. For whatever his strengths were, Richard Nixon never really learned how to court the press. His defense strategy always seemed to be deflect first. Not willing to lose his spot on the Republican ticket, Nixon had the RNC purchase television airtime after fundraising $75,000 to buy the time slot. More money going to the speech than was being scrutinized in the fun. Playing humble, Nixon sat in front of a television camera on the night of September 23, 1952, on NBC. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency and as a man whose honesty and, te- and integrity has been questioned. Now, the usual political thing to do when charges are made against you is to either ignore them or to deny them without giving details. I believe we've had enough of that in the United States, particularly with the present administration in Washington, D.C. To me, the office of the Vice Presidency of the United States is a great office, and I feel that the people have got to have confidence in the integrity of the men who run for that office and who might obtain it. I have a theory, too, that the best and only answer to a smear or to an honest misunderstanding of the facts, is to tell the truth. And that's why I'm here tonight. I want to tell you my side of the case. I'm sure that you have read the charge and you've heard it, that I, Senator Nixon, took $18,000 from a group of my supporters. Now, was that wrong? And let me say that it was wrong. I'm saying, incidentally, that it was wrong, not just illegal, because it isn't a question of whether it was legal or illegal. That isn't enough. The question is, was it morally wrong? I say that it was morally wrong if any of that $18,000 went to Senator Nixon for my personal use. I say that it was morally wrong if it was secretly given and secretly handled. And I say that it was morally wrong if any of the contributors got special favors for the contributions that they made. And now to answer those questions, let me say this. Not one cent of the $18,000 or any other money of that type ever went to me for my personal use. Nixon lamented his own lifestyle, saying that he and his wife Pat lived modestly. However, he did admit to accepting one political gift that he would never give up. His Cocker Spaniel Checkers. That was his children's dog, and he would never, ever take that away from them. The ploy for sympathy worked for some, but others found it cringeworthy. The speech would forever be called the Checkers speech. But Nixon always maintained that if enough people contacted the RNC he would take himself off the ticket. The switchboard at NBC lit up brightly that night, and though Eisenhower's staff had assisted in getting the spot secured for Nixon, Eisenhower watched with a wary eye. The Hail Mary appeared to have worked, but Eisenhower found the entire thing disingenuous. 
He had no political experience, but he reasoned that removing Nixon now would have hurt him. The RNC was flooded with letters begging Ike to keep Nixon on the ticket. It was his choice, he knew that, but with public sentiment on Nixon's side, he knew. Information was also revealed that opponent Adlai Stevenson had a fund similar to Nixon's, and they demanded its content be known and released to the public. Nixon had saved himself. And unfortunately, this would forever give him an air of arrogance that he could get himself out of any situation. Any chance for Nixon and Eisenhower to work in harmony seemed to be quashed. Nixon's people hated Eisenhower and vice versa. But Ike, newly acquainted with politics, was smart enough to realize that if he canned Nixon, he'd never win. So, to quote Aaron Burr in the musical Hamilton, Hold your nose and close your eyes. Following Nixon's performance, Ike did write a memo to his running mates. He called his performance magnificent, but then he reminded him who was in charge. My personal decision, he wrote to Nixon, is going to be based on personal conclusions. Eisenhower wanted Nixon to know that he was there at his demand and he could be gone tomorrow if Ike wanted Nixon would spend the rest of his life believing that Eisenhower despised him. Eisenhower would deny it, but some staffers say he did dislike him immensely. And as we all know, Nixon's relationship with the press would scarcely improve. But from here on out, Ike had an election to win. I for president, I for president, I for president, I for president, you like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president, hang out the band and beat the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington, we don't want John, or Dean, or Harry, let's do that big job right, just get in step with the guy that's up, get in step with Ike, you like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president, hang out the band and beat the drum, we'll take Ike to Washington, we got to get where we are going. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we talk about some of God's favorite people, or at least those who thought they were. <laughs> Richard Nixon. <laughs> Excuse me. Sources for today's episode include Stephen Ambrose's Eisenhower Soldier and President, Jeffrey Frank's Ike and Dick, A Portrait of a Strange Political Marriage. Highly recommend that one. History.com, NATO's website, and Columbia University. Thanks to everyone who donates to our Patreon page. That money goes to buy these books, and we hope you support the authors that we use for research over here. It also goes to streaming costs such as music and distribution services. Join us next time as we fight a cold war. We're talking espionage next time. That's my favorite. Join us on TikTok over at History Talk. My user handle is at Melissa Fairlady. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time, friends.